Storymakers. Story I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And this is Storymakers Show. Today we sit down with Hari Myers. We met Hari at the Rialto Theater in Sebastopol on the secret night before opening night of Star Wars... Episode 7, The Force Awakens. The Force Awakens. And there was Hari in the lobby as we were all waiting to get our seats. And he was is a storyteller. And so I struck up a conversation with him about myth and storytelling and the art of live storytelling. And I really wanted to bring him on the podcast because we've talked with authors and filmmakers, but we haven't actually talked with someone who gets up in front of a live audience. And you know what's really funny that totally didn't occur to me while we were talking to Hari? But there's definitely a whole movement about storytelling, and this isn't part of it. Like... He's not part of, like, the Porchlight series. He's not that kind of storyteller. And we should get some of them in, <laughs> in too. Right. But he is this kind of ancient storyteller. He goes back to these ancient traditions, and he, and he talks about that with us, some of what was, what's important about bringing that in and, and reintroducing that to kids who don't even know the stories he's telling that used to be kind of a solid part of an education. For the past 25 years, Hari has told mythological tales from all over the world, many in their places of origin, including Asia, Africa, South America, parts of Europe, and the United States. And he was a practicing psychotherapist for 15 years, so he's also taught literature and he's taught psychology. And he definitely brings the psychotherapy and the myths together, so he'll talk a little bit about how those two things fit together in, in his worldview. Not so much Freud, more young. Yes. We're not so young anymore. But anyway. (laughs) For those of you not in the know, Sonoma County Writers Camp is coming up in August, and they've already sold most of their places. So check with Elizabeth at elizabeth at elizabethstark.com to find out if there are any spaces left. If you're interested in having an intimate weekend with writing professionals, including agents and the authors Ellen Sussman and Elizabeth Stark. And get on the waiting list if we don't have any room. And finally, we have a couple spaces left in the salon. So go to bookwritingworld.com forward slash classes to find out more about how salon can radically improve your writing life. And enjoy the show. Welcome to Storymaker Show. Hi. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. It's so nice to have you. Um, so we start with talking about what we're each working on. So Angie, you want to start? Well, I, I continue to be on the seventh revision of my tenth attempt at writing this one particular script, so that is what I am working on. <laughs> that's, that's good. you got to just keep, keep rolling. Yeah. Um, I am on I don't even know which revision of um, my uh, novel, and I'm due to hand it off to my writing group in about a week, so... That deadline is looming, and um, and I'm letting myself edit during my early morning writing period, which has been really exciting. Because um, normally I just write, but since I mm-hmm. need to finish it, I'm editing. And it's it's like with writing, it's just so freeing to to do that first thing in, in kind of dream state. So, all right. all right, what are you working on these days? Well, at the very moment, I'm uh, preparing for. Uh, in eight days, we'll have a performance called Remembering Isis. I'm a storyteller, and I have told stories, uh, classic stories. I've told the Isis story uh, several times in the past, just as a part of, um, to get a flavor for Egyptian mythology. But this particular uh, 
and I'm working with three others. And the inspiration for this and the timing is, as I've said, I've done stories before touching on the Egyptian goddess Isis, who's a one form of the great goddess, and which have many stories from many cultures. But specifically now, we're attempting to reclaim the name of Isis away from the negative connotation that it's been used uh, for the name of this horror terror group. So that name now is associated with fear, and we're trying to resurrect the reverence and the, uh, the beneficence of the uh, blessed goddess. So uh, it's interesting. We're going to have some uh, reflections in this story, as well as the classic tale, which I'll pr primarily tell, but other people were going to interact with um, yeah. uh, some of the complexity of this other stuff, like a newscaster interrupting us to tell things about ISIS, and the current <laughs> ISIS. Yeah. It used to be that uh, if I uh, Googled ISIS for images or so forth, or just to get things on the story, be pages, ISIS, the God. Now you have to go to ISIS, the goddess. If you just do ISIS, you'll get 24 pages yeah. of uh, terror reports and so yeah. forth. Did they pick the name ISIS for themselves? No, it's, uh, it's supposedly from Islamic State uh, in Syria. And it's also Islamic State in uh, the Levant, ISIL. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, so their name is Daesh in the Arab world. The name of the group is Daesh, but the Western press keeps referring to it as ISIS. Great. So this is mm -hmm. an active use of storytelling as kind of a political intervention. Yes. Mm -hmm. Speaking for the current times. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. I sort of struggle. I studied anthropology and history. And one of the things that was at Santa Cruz, I should also locate that. Um, <laughs> because one of the things that was always a challenge in both of those disciplines was sort of looking at the stories that we bring from other cultures and how we talk about them and how mm -hmm. we think about them. And um, you know, a critique of Joseph Campbell, for example, is that perhaps he was not as deft in non-Western mm -hmm. um, narrative structures and 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 Myths. Maybe you mean that the structure might not be universal, it not be as universal yes. as we kind of <laughs> continue to talk about it. Um, if you were going to think about like something that you think is perhaps maybe defining in maybe Western storytelling, like thinking of Europe and thinking mm -hmm. of um, Greece, Rome, um, what would what do you think is sort of a defining char characteristic of that kind of mythology? Well, to begin with, um, cross culturally with all mythology, what I look for. Uh, in absorbing it into myself in order to be able to present it, I look for an archetypal understanding that the uh, various characters represent universal archetypes of something we move through. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, a uh, quick example, if I were to tell the story of David, King David, something that everybody knows, David and Goliath and so forth, but in David's later life, once he's king and he's involved in the politics of the realm, everything is disastrous. He's involved in adultery, his children rebel against him, his life is miserable. So on an archetypal level, that besides you have the golden, the golden child, the, the promise of youth, mm -hmm. and then the defeat in the complexity of dealing with the world as it is. Mm -hmm. So besides just the figure and story of da David, that would represent that, that sort of thing. That means something to me. Mm -hmm. And then I would look for something like that, some archetypal thing that goes outside the story mm -hmm. for any of it. Um, 
I think Western myth, though, is, is based on developmental aspects. Mm-hmm. And uh, goddess stories are interesting because we have um, uh, virgin, mother, and crone. Uh, uh, traditionally, masculine mythology is truncated. It's, it's, it's cut off at the hero level. It's not complete. We should have stories of older men. We should have stories of the, what Joseph Campbell would call the return from the journey. But we've got stuck in the more adolescent part of the masculine mm. story of the, mm. the going out, the quest, mm. and, and so forth. So uh, that's something I try to, uh, not correct, but I try to bring some other aspects of, uh, that's why I'd be interested in the latter part of David's, not just his glory, but what happens in it actually sort of reminds me of the story of Oedipus in the full trilogy where he actually goes through a process where after he's gone through this horrific mm-hmm. experience in the first place, mm-hmm. he comes to his place of wisdom when he mm-hmm. gets to Colonus, which, right. is, mm-hmm. which is still part of that set of stories, but it's not, you know, no one talks about that as That's much. right. That's right. I'm not sure what that is due to, but I know that that is a serious lack because I also do a lot of work in... Uh, men's retreats and men's where I'm trying. Uh, I was once uh, a practicing therapist, but my own, and I'm retired. But my ongoing interest in masculine development is to get men beyond uh, the heroic, which ultimately leads in frustration and the wounds of the heroic, and then they have no way of mm-hmm. making making the wise medicine from it. Mm-hmm. So it's something that I think needs to be uh, shifted mm-hmm. and um, augmented. I actually want to, I want to, I'm sure we'll circle around to all of this, but I wanted to talk about being a live storyteller, standing in front of an audience, because a lot of our listeners are maybe writing short stories or novels or creating films mm-hmm. and, um, or even, you know, writing a play that other people are going to perform live, but to, to stand up in front of an audience and to be kind of having to make your choices in the moment as yes. you get response, what does this teach you about what makes a story compelling? Well, to begin with, uh, the reason I uh, chose storytelling more than uh, 25 years ago as something that I really wanted to give myself to is I had an insight that the, the um, live expression, that communicating something person to person or in a live way was um, much more vibrant and even transcendental to anything we get via media, even reading in a book. Mm-hmm. And certainly uh, television. So I was interested in promoting live expression. Uh, that's the the uh, method that I was interested in. The content was the archetypal that I just mentioned. But uh, so when I'm standing there, it is uh, quite interesting because I told the same story to different audiences. I can feel an interaction. I can, I feel some general level of this audience's anticipation of their level of attention, and it amplifies. I will perform not, it's not out of vanity, I will perform much better before a large audience, generally, than uh, a few uh, people. And the reason for that isn't that I don't give it my all, but if you have a large audience giving you that attention, it magnifies. So you become bigger, and also you intuit there's some way in which you intuit what they need to hear. It's, it's strange. So certain details, different details will be emphasized the different times I tell a story, depending on something which would be hard to describe that I feel coming from that live audience, that we're in this moment. 
and it will change. I can actually really imagine that because I've, I've had the experience of reading aloud to my children from a book that is too advanced for them conceptually. Um, for example, my very, one of my favorite books is from the mixed up files of Mrs. Vasily Frankweiler. And um, I tried to read it to them when they were about five and it just wasn't, they couldn't follow it. And because they couldn't follow it, reading it aloud to them, I felt it was overwrought. And I mean, there were just, I had this sort of critical sense of it because I was sensing it through them. And then a couple years later, I read it to them when it was the right time. And it was, it was a completely different mm -hmm, book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there is some way that the, that you, you kind of know who you're speaking to. And of course that. All right. So, and from the audience's point of view, as far as I'm, I'm concerned, the having someone present something to you live. And I've had this, particularly going to a school, like for a while I would tell the Epic of Gilgamesh they had a Mesopotamian uh, unit at a local school and they would invite me in on years two. And it was seventh graders, which was generally a little younger than I usually speak to. But um, when, when you are before an audience, one thing you can immediately see them grasp once it starts... There's a familiarity to hearing a story from a live person, whether they've heard it in the last 10, 15, 20 years, or even in this life. There is a collective memory of our sitting around campfires, hearing an elder tell the story, a story to us. And that comes alive. They get that. And it's, there's something mystical about it. You're passing on a tradition. And I'm very committed to that. I think um, live expression is a soulful means of communicating, whereas often via media is um, more cut and dry, it, it's uh, time bound, mm -hmm. and I try to exceed the, the moment to a more universal feeling. It's funny because we're in this moment where the book is changing and the book is going electronic and I'm hearing some people say people don't read anymore, which you know is not true in the circles I run in, but um, it's funny to think of live performance as the thing that, you know, maybe was in some way displaced by the book mm -hmm. and at the same time not displaced, right? Mm -hmm. Never displaced as, as I think will be, has proven true with, with the movies. You know, it seemed like it was being displaced and it hasn't and I think will be yeah. proved true with the book. Well, you know, um, Plato in one of his dialogues, Phaedrus, I think it was, uh, told the story of how mankind collectively lost... Uh, a huge capacity of its memory once things started being written down. And we know this, like if I were to, you know, we read the Iliad and the Odyssey, but the bards of that time, the rhapsodes, could recite it by heart, let alone the Mahabharata, which is 15 times the length of both of them put together, they would recite by heart. And of course there were metric and formulaic things that right. helped the person move through it well, yeah it's, it's interesting i was actually just i'm reading this book right now called the science of the magical which has really been a fun read and one of the things he actually talks about is storytelling in um cultures where it still exists in a kind of stand-up you know bard-like way mm -hmm. and that what they found is you know because what they were trying to do is analyze how much did this change you know from the beginning to the point where it gets written down mm -hmm. and um and it was just very interesting looking at that whole series and saying like uh, certain phrases are used over and over and and there's actually quite a bit of variation except yes. for certain key things. So yes. what they were really remembering are these sort of pillars of information and that in any given performance of these like mm -hmm. huge epics, um, 
there would be quite a bit of variation except for these big pillars that they, they all knew to go to. So every time you went to see a story, you kind of knew certain things that would happen, but that right. the language and the way in which they would tell exactly. it. So when we talk about memory, it's also sort of a different thing in that I think, you know, when we go to school now, we have to memorize right. in a very particular word for word way. Whereas uh, I think it almost loses the vivacity yeah. of bringing that individual interpreter of the story to mm-hmm. bear on the story. So. Well, I agree. I agree with you and or with that uh, science of magic. There are a couple. Of, it, it brings up two things for me. One is that uh, since I started doing this and the content that I'm trying to do, classic uh, mythologies and fairy tales and archetypal material, I realized that people, the contemporary audience, do not know these stories. Mm. That a uh, hundred years ago, educated people would know these stories, but educated people do not know even Greek mythology, let alone uh, so other ones. So the um, so I have a f- something of an obligation, I feel, to telling a story in a traditional form and getting quote, the facts straight, but they vary. So I'll go through different versions, like in Isis. Ultimately, there's a Plutarch version that moves through the Western world. So you try to get it straight. However, when you're telling a story, an example, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is a hero's search ultimately for immortality. You, these are the pillars that you're talking about. You know that he starts out f- physical idea, overcoming the, f- the beast in the forest. Then he looks for something else. Then fi- finally, he's, it's a search for knowledge, his immortality. So you begin to you look at what the steps are, the developmental stages, and you know what that is. And that's what you have to get in yourself is where is this story going? Where, what are its key pillars? Then how you get from one to the other is up to you. Mm-hmm. And that may change audience feeling something in the audience, uh, how you get there. And, and that's inventive and that's creative. No one would want to rule that out, that license that you take to, um, to get there and, and to make comments to modern times, right. you know, very different from uh, telling a story hundreds of years ago, let alone thousands of years ago, from telling it to this audience, as in our current ISIS thing, we are emphasizing that they have a very different idea of ISIS than we want to resurrect. Mm -hmm. So So do you talk about the story as you're telling it, or do you go right into telling the story? I basically tell it, and I have usually the format that I evolved is I have discussions afterwards, (laughs) though you could interrupt a story and talk about, and I've heard storytellers do that, mm-hmm. what grabs you there. I have a kind of a purist instinct to let the story speak for itself and then um, analyze it, although sometimes I have thought it might be better to break it up into smaller portions, because if I tell a story for an hour and 15 minutes and then, you know, it's mm-hmm. uh, people have forgotten what struck them in the beginning or so right. forth. So, yeah, it's it's... Yeah, it's it. we're we're reeducating ourselves how to hear things, how to know things. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're coming out of being inundated with uh, external, uh, externally um, <laughs> driven. I was going to say, but really dropped on us ideas to touch in some inner mm-hmm. knowing mm-hmm. to you know resurrect what we already know and bring that out. 
Well, it's interesting that you say that because one of the things that is sort of, you know, popular, I do a lot of online research about filmmaking and about, you know, techniques that people are using. And there is actually a lot of discussion about the difference between a consumer and a producer and that there's actually a value right now in people being more producer driven rather than being just simply a consumer. And I think that that's an, a kind of a newer place. I think when we had sort of fewer but more dominant uh, media outlets, people just thought you had to, you had to be yeah. somewhere else in order to do that. And then we went to a play and um, we had this very, well, you want to tell a story? Well, I mean, I think what you're saying is just a few years ago, I mean, I don't know now, however many, but once our kids were old enough that we were leaving them with somebody and going to a play, which was thrilling in and of itself, we just had the experience of it almost seeming like some new radical idea, you know, some new invention mm -hmm. because it was so thrilling to be in live theater and that sense that anything could happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but 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 at the at the same time, the things you're talking about are choices around narrator, which also apply to writing a book, right? That's How much right. you're going to stop and and interrogate the process of telling the story and and that mm -hmm. it's a story and all of that. And how reliable is the narrator and how you know and exactly, yeah, yeah exactly. I wonder too how much you you changed, not just the audience, but over time, how how have the stories changed because you've changed and you're in different life stages. I, uh, that, that's true. There'll be times I'll, uh, other things will appeal to me more. I have, I must confess that over the years that I've been doing this, I've come up with a favorite repertory of maybe, you know, 30 to 40 tales, and of those, maybe a good 20 that I've told a, a, a lot of times. We have the, uh, we have a men's conference coming up, and I always tell stories through that weekend. This one is coming up, and this, one of the themes is, what is it that um, erupts into violence? What's unexamined in men's lives that erupts into violence? And uh, someone suggested I tell the Iliad. Well, I've told the whole Trojan story different times, but I never told the Iliad as Homer structures it, and I actually love it. It's something I've read many, many times, and I jumped at it because one of the things in that is that he's not just speaking of the war and what happened. Each battle that Homer recorded has a motive behind it that's slightly different. Each combatant has their own quarrel, which could touch into what we're looking at. What has been unsettled or resented or not healed inside that erupts into violence or allows this person to participate in violence. Plus, the Homeric, uh, the Iliad is far from glorifying war. There is not a, a death. I mean, the armor <laughs> clatters about them as they fall, all of them. But somewhere dun, 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 Thrace and somewhere over there, the poet will interrupt the story to say that somewhere a parent is grieving. Somewhere a sister will never greet her brother, so forth. He, he and how it touches the whole world. It's very, it's, uh, so I'm, I'm excited about uh, looking into that, you know, trying to find out what would verbally work for me as, uh, but trying to hold to the structure, staying in the ninth year of the battle, for instance. It's, a, it's interesting to hear you say that you start with kind of an issue, like, okay, mm -hmm. we want to look at violence. How does violence right. erupt? And then you look for a story. Correct. And then you tell the story and perhaps you tell it a particular way or you look mm -hmm. for a particular form. And then what? What happens to, to that story? What does that story do? Well, classically in the form of where we actually have, which is ideal, a whole weekend that we're working with people, 
so they can break away in small groups from the story and we'll leave them with some images. What, what struck you there and, and what brought that up and what is that in your life so that they begin to work it? It does two things. One, it gives them a chance. It gives them an impetus, a powerful way to work um, an, an image. But also, I think it takes the problem they're wrestling with out of the limitation of the individual into a universal. They realize that their problem is something Achilles was dealing with, something King David was dealing with. And it's, it's more significant at that level. It's, um, I was about to say it's more hopeful, but it's, it, 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 it's, less, um, it's less stigmatizing. The focus, instead of on the neurotic element of it, the focus is on what is learned from this wound not what is the damage that you're carrying through the rest of your life, you know? So if you had a critical mother, for instance, what did you learn from being under that, rather than, oh, well, I can't do it, my mother will, you know, it said it's telling so the same story. So you're saying that Freud just made storytelling totally boring. <laughs> On a certain level, yes. Forcing yes. us to continually look backwards, whereas right. uh, these archetypes, these myths, these legends can actually help us look forward by thinking about what was learned, the, the lesson. Because that, that is such a model now for such, so much storytelling. What is yeah. the lesson the character learns? Well, since I'm a retired therapist, psychologically, I, that is of interest to me. That is exactly the difference and the split between Freud and Jung. Freud was looking at the unconscious as belonging to an individual. So something that happens to you is repressed into your individual unconscious. But Jung saw a collective unconscious, the things that happen through the species, and that then those getting into that archetypes that live in the collective unconscious is much more um, hopeful for healing, and it's also more spiritual. It takes you, it has that transcendental possibility of taking you out of the individual into a, a universal understanding. Yeah. This is, this is a question I have about story. You know, why do we tell stories? Why do we write stories? Um, and I think this is getting to that. But, you know, how conscious is that learning? How um, do, we, do we actually seek out stories because we need to learn these things, which might be true, or do we seek out stories because they're pleasurable, they hook us in, we want to know what's going to happen? I think both, and that often... Uh, what we learn comes once we're engaged in the story. We're not initially drawn to it for that, but mm -hmm. something engaged in the process uh, starts to come through. Um, an example of it was that King David, I didn't really realize that uh, that complexity of dealing with the world and how often we're defeated by the world. I didn't set out to tell the story for that point. I was just... Mm -hmm felt the need at one point to resurrect the Old Testament biblical story. And I hit on David. And then as I worked with it, and it, there, then as I worked with it and thought about it for a month or two before I was going to tell it, uh, ahas came into me. Oh, that's like what happened to me, or this or that. Or, you know, it's, of course, more dramatic. You know, I didn't, I didn't send... Uh, uh, a woman's husband off to be killed in a battle. So, but I, but I have had jealousies. I have had, you know, I have had um, envious thoughts and so forth. So it's, uh, yeah. And then I have to say, like, I also feel like um, 
having read some of these plays that talk about these myths. So like there's definitely a moment where your playwright is taking sort of a snapshot of the culture at the time. But I remember reading Medea with a group of people and people were just like, nope, can't access it. They had no way to sort of access her behavior. Yeah, it's pretty extreme. It was pretty extreme. (laughs) And I kind of felt like that was one of the good examples of the fact that even though these things we talk about as sort of universal or whatever, they are culture bound Mm -hmm. and they're time bound. And there's Mm -hmm. certain things that we Mm -hmm. won't necessarily, you know, I feel like a lot of writing right now is really about how much psychology has influenced us. And so a lot of times people are looking at, you know, a wound or a flaw, what gets learned. Mm-hmm. And, and and in a very therapeutic model, if you go back, you have a religious model, right? You have the, mm-hmm. um, the, the morality plays and those kinds of things. And then you go back further still, the lessons are different, but we keep applying our own meaning as we go back and look at right. it. Right. So, and sometimes I, I, I agree, sometimes I think the whole kit and caboodle, we could jettison the whole kit and caboodle as baggage. Um, and when I get to that, then I, I have to say that it's sometimes the bottom line is a, a, an intriguing entertainment value, mm-hmm. that the stories have been kept alive, maybe, despite what I said, not so much for their psychological insight, but because they intrigue us. For instance, whether or not you... Uh, had a desire, as Freud says, to sleep with your mother, Mm -hmm. and so forth. The way that is found out, the way that is structured by Sophocles, that particular telling, and that's another point I could do, but that particular telling is structured. It's intriguing. Mm -hmm. The way each messenger or Tiresias, they add a, a, a slight piece to it, it's intriguing. That's going to get you. It engages your mind, no matter what the content is, the way he is told that. So you have some things like the Iliad where we have some myth that we have beautiful forms. The Mahabharata, this is told in a great form and uh, those are classics. Then we have things like the uh, 12 labors of Heracles. There is not extant any specific text that, and yet we know the story because it's in the collective unconscious because it's been passed on orally. So I could tell you the 12 labors of Heracles but I don't know a text that gives me the insight into it the way Homer's Iliad, if you mm-hmm. know what I see. There's some things that, are, and once it's put down like that, like Oedipus, that whatever the story is, Sophocles telling of it, since it's extant, will remain. Right. You know, that's. You, there was something you wanted to say about other tellings of, of Oedipus. Um, not specifically, just that, you know, in, in that case, the, the way a particular. Um, genius has organized it and that may speak to some uh, deep insight into the collective universality but that that person's been able to put into it and then you know so that's uh, you know that's that's great that's incredible even though there may not have been a Homer you know uh, to have but something collective, eventually it was fixed in a form that is pretty darn good. You know, so you look at that. Although most of the stories I must say I tell from are um, not as uh, classically held mm-hmm. as the Iliad and so forth. I have to say my favorite uh, production, there was, it was at Berkeley Rep 20 something years ago. 
And it was Clarence Fountain and the five blind boys from Alabama doing what was called the gospel at Colonus. And it's mm-hmm. so it was Oedipus mm-hmm. at Colonus, but it was played by Clarence Fountain and the five blind boys from Alabama. And so it, it had wow. taken that and right. mixed it with gospel um, traditions and music, but telling the same story. Absolutely. And um, things like that, I just think are... They're tremendously yeah. powerful. And we're, we're hoping and trying for something that like that with this ISIS. Mm-hmm. We're hoping that not only will the classic tale come across, but some of the irony of what mm-hmm. the way we're looking at it now and so forth. Yeah, yeah that's good. Well, one of the things I'm wondering as we talk about all of this is, you know, thinking of the people who don't, didn't, couldn't identify with Medea or whatever, just how much are we shaped by hearing the stories and how much are the stories shaped by echoing who we are? And if we aren't hearing the stories anymore, are we becoming different people for who require different stories? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, I started in a way thinking, what's the myth for our time? And so I started looking at past myths and archetypes, thinking that we would get to it. And then I realized that people don't know what we've been through, what the archetypes are. And I have had that that question, and I've looked at it sometimes trying to figure out what, um, in biblical studies, some they call it heuristic. What is the interpret, what is the priestcraft's need? What's the propaganda of this piece? So I try to separate what I think is psychological propaganda from the time to what is an eternal question that works through. I'm not sure I could come up with an example in the moment, but things that have to do with a specific means of worship or how much, yeah, that's clearly propaganda of a particular priest or to keep, you know, people in, 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 uh, in line. In line, exactly. And then other things that deal with some ongoing psychological thing. But even there, I'm with you, Angie, that it's, it, you know, it, it might be good for us to question our fealty to the classics, you know, and say, well, you know, here's where we are and, Maybe part of our burden is that, you know, you've laid this on us and so forth, you know. <laughs> you've done some personal writing. You early yes, on, you wrote yes. a memoir. How did you find yourself influenced by myth in telling your own story in that instance or, or subsequently? I wasn't consciously aware of my mythic studies when I write my own things, but usually I, but then sometime I'll look at it and I'll see that there is some way in which um, uh, it, uh, some way in which it needs to be told, which comes from some inner understanding that I have from having gone through so many myths. Like, again, the, um, in the example of Gilgamesh, for us to have some empathy for him at the end, uh, we start the story with him as a very cruel king, and we wind up with empathy for him. But he has to, at first, he has to exhaust the uh, adolescent idea that immortality or achievement comes from might mm-hmm. comes from bettering others so you get, and in even in one's own story you know writing about yourself you see sometimes that you you've got to go through lay out a certain um things that you may even reject with who you are now but you see how it how it Formed the story, mm-hmm. formed the story, and of course, when you're writing it, you're somewhat you're in it, but you're somewhat detached. You have become a character, and it, not so much the uh, witness and perceiver mm-hmm. as a character in the story. And you're writing a memoir. It's 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 uh, it's an interesting process. It gives great insight. 
Do you bring some of those? I know you work with clients as well. Do you bring some of those pillars in when you're working with their stories? Yes. I was not as I retired a while ago from my practice of therapy. I certainly do it now at the men's conference. But I I wished when I look back that I had known a little bit more and had found some creative way uh, to bring that in. I, I certainly did look for what they were telling me for the universal aspect of it rather than how that particular mother beat them or so mm. forth. I tried to look at what's what's actually asking for understanding in that mm. person. What what are they which is something I think we always have to ask ourselves. What is what's wanting clarity in myself? You know, why why am I going through these repetitious patterns? What what have I yet to learn? Do you think storytellers tell stories in order to figure these things out for themselves? Stories they don't know the answers to yet? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think most story, you know, in some ways it was a craft. You know, it was their gig. And uh, they were very good at it. It's like, it's like um, I love Bach. And I think Bach was, is profoundly spiritual human being. I'm not sure that he knew... Th- of that himself in a way. I think he was working the the needs of polyphonic music and so forth, but how those voices come together is transcendent and because he's so dedicated and into it. Mm-hmm. So I I think that's kind of a metaphor for what, what you're asking is I think as a storyteller, whether I'm aware that I'm working something out or not, because I know this needs that, this art form needs that, mm-hmm. something transcends Mm. my own could you give some advice if you were coaching as I know you do some some sort of coaching of writers if you were if you were coaching our listeners um, as they're creating stories um, from your own experience you know again in front of the live audience or thinking through how to evolve the the pillars into a whole piece like what what would you advise for telling creating compelling story yeah I uh, I advise uh, I had a, a Someone I was coaching very recently, who was writing a, um, we'll call it a spiritual book of some spiritual insights, and the insights were good, but the voice in the book, I thought was dull, and I encouraged this person to um, infuse it with some personal stories that led to that insight, and I think it livened it a great. A great deal, although the particular writer was shy of autobiographical content, but it definitely lives. And so you have to get a, uh, in touch with a feeling in you. What's compelling you to tell this story? What's compelling you to tell? And then give that as much um, energy, rain as you can. Let that come out. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So I think. Um, we are at the Final steal this segment. section. Steal this. So okay. um, steal this is based from a T.S. Eliot quote, and it's based on the idea. Well, his quote is: "Amateur poets borrow, professional poets steal." Mm-hmm. And so we're looking at things that can be in something you've read that you'd like to bring into your own work. It could be um, any number something of things you admire that you see someone mm-hmm. else do. A cooking recipe struck <laughs> you. We're really open. So, <laughs> is there anything you've come across? Yeah, there are uh, two things. Let's say one is uh, old, uh, older in me, though, is the newer writer of the two I'm going to mention. The second, and the second is very contemporary with something I'm dealing with at the moment. And the, the first one would be um, 
uh, Fitzgerald in The Great Gatsby. I've read that book many, many times, and I'm not a, unique or alone in this. And ultimately, if you separate, oh, yes, the, 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 the 20s is, is fascinating, but do we really care about a bootlegger, you know, who, and uh, the, the moral questions throughout that? It is written so beautifully that if I could steal that, uh, not sentence structure, but that rhythmic, especially the end, well, the opening and the ending, it's, it's so rhythmically that I, I, I envy that and would, would invoke getting that kind of ear and rhythm inside myself. Another thing that I'm currently attempting to steal is some years ago I started a, what would be a one-man performance on Walt Whitman, his poetry, and speaking about his life. And I put it aside because I couldn't solve certain problems, and I've just picked it up again. And what I would, I love Walt Whitman. I love Walt Whitman. And what I would love to steal from him whether, is, uh, is the expanse, the embracing. My goodness, there's nothing that's outside his Well, he purview. contains multitudes. He contains so. multitudes <laughs> and contradicts himself. Uh, yes, he contains multitudes. And I would like to contain uh, multitudes. So at the moment, I'm beginning research again on him for the... the um, story aspect of this production, which is, is uh, difficult. Not so difficult to uh, pick poems you love. It's mm. the difficulty there is limiting them. It's, right. it's tremendous. So I'm, I'm intending to do that. And I just, uh, you know, if I could, I would, I would steal his spirit. Mm. You know? Wonderful. We didn't talk much about rhythm of this telling stories out right. loud, but that strikes me as something you would have a lot of practice with. Yes. I don't often extract it to something that I think about, but mm -hmm. it's definitely there, and it's there in the different audience. I don't know how, but you just get a sense that rhythmically to emphasize different things and, and so forth, you know. Um, for instance, in this Isis that we're doing, we're going to emphasize her... Um, gathering the parts of Osiris's body that have been scattered, because to us that's like the the refugees and the what's you know of the uh, needing to gather again the parts of deity. So you know there, and so the the rhythm of that section would be a little different than an, another. Yeah, so rhythm rhythm is important, but mostly I've found that's an internal knowing. You know, I mean, of course we study things, and you know, if you're a poet, you have to. Mm -hmm. You have to know what you're doing, but mostly it's an internal prompting that you have to uh, give credence to. So I agree. I agree. What are you stealing? What am I stealing? Well, I just finished reading Miranda July's novel, The First Bad Man, and it was so mind-blowing. Um, it it started with such quirky specificity. You just, I just sat there thinking like, who is this person? She's so strange. And these happenings that are almost seem like magical realism or just strange performative invention. And then somehow it just deepens and deepens and deepens until this character becomes somebody I feel completely aligned with and kind of, She's, she articulates some things about parenting that I think are amazing. I mean, it's just, I was such an amazing book. I'm not even sure I'm actually quite ready to steal it because I don't know what exactly, except the courage for sure, which comes up a lot on the podcast somehow thematically. But the, the willingness to go 
so quirky and so specific and, and somehow trust that this is the story you're going to tell and it's going to find its way to archetypes and to, um, you know, and to uh, places the audience can connect the reader through this like incredible specific individuality. I just, I don't more about that as I am able to articulate, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm pretty blown away. Yeah, definitely. Um, what I'm sort of stealing in, uh, as I do my revision, there is a wonderful writer called Tony Ju who does, he's actually, a, a, he does video essays. So he looks at film and he looks at different aspects of film. And then he does these like short three, four minute mm-hmm. video essays about him. And one he had on um, a movie called Memories of Murder and looking at ensemble staging, and it really added depth. So you had that sense of what was happening in the front story, but then noticing what was happening, small details that tell a story in the background. And so actually on this particular revision, I'm trying to build some depth into my story Mm -hmm. by thinking about what the characters who are not directly framed up, who are not directly having the uh, most obvious story happen, uh, what are they doing and how do they bring in information? Mm-hmm. Sort of my focusing on Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, I guess. Uh-huh. All right. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's thank just been you. wonderful. It was a pleasure for me. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.